Chapter Twelve of Wise and Otherwise. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Wise and Otherwise by Pansy. Chapter Twelve. There is treasure to be desired and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man spendeth it up. Two most thoroughly uncomfortable beings were Del Bronson and Mr. Tresevant. He, on his part, went directly to his room, paused long enough to discover that his wife had forgotten her tears in slumber, then donned coat and boots and went moodily out, downtown, with no other purpose in view than getting rid of himself. Now what, in the name of common sense, was the trouble with Mr. Tresevant? Could he think one thing when he was talking with his wife, and decidedly another thing when he talked with someone else? Indeed, it would have been very difficult for Mr. Tresevant to answer that question. He struggled vainly to answer it satisfactorily to himself. Was he really one who cared nothing in his heart for the temperance question? On the contrary, he would have been heartily glad to see that evil thing in temperance uprooted from the land. He still differed, and differed honestly, from many ways that people had of doing this thing, though his convictions as to his way being right and theirs wrong were not so marked and positive as they once were. But it was such an unpleasant thing, so utterly revolting, to imagine himself talked about, his plans and intentions discussed and commented upon, people actually trying to lay out a road and say to him, You walk in that, as if he were not capable of judging for himself. As if it were any one's business what I do or where I live, he said, drawing himself up proudly, and growing angry again over the thought. Now there is no question in my mind but that minister's affairs are too narrowly looked into, the question as to whether he will make his woodpile at the right or left side of his woodshed, or plant potatoes or peas at the further end of his garden, are questions which, it seems to me, might safely be left to his own discretion. Yet how many a minister actually glories in this spirit of planning that is aglow in his parish? Why? Because he is not capable of, or does not like to plan for himself? Not a bit of it, but because the planning is an index of the loving, helpful spirit that pervades his people. It is not a narrow spirit of management, it is born of love. Who cares where the man who keeps the corner grocery piles his wood? Indeed, they hardly care whether or not he has any wood to pile. But the minister belongs to the people. Yes, he does. And the true minister glories in the thought. They love him, else very few of them would trouble their heads about him, except, indeed, to keep a diary of his faults. And if their management does occasionally leap its bounds, and arrange for him matters that come within his own private province, he considers the hearts that prompted the act, and is joyful still. No such considerations came to Mr. Tresevant's aid. He had not fostered them in his heart. He had gone through all his life thus far, looking right and left for people who were trying to control him. It was the old, perverse, unquenchable I springing up at every step of the way to confront him. Why, the man had actually married his wife in a spirit of indignation at Del Bronson for presuming to think that she could change his views and fashion him to suit herself. Not that he knew this, not that he by any means realized when he vowed before God and man to love and cherish Laura Elliot, that he was taking these vows upon him because Del Bronson did not think he would, and it was to be a lesson to her for presuming to dictate to him. If he had realized this, he would have shrunken from himself in terror and disgust. The trouble is that he did as he always had done, nursed his injured feelings until they swelled into wrath, worked at the molehill day and night with all his might, until he piled it into a mountain, considered himself an insulted man, and immediately cast about him for the most marked way of showing people that he did not care. 
Being the man that he was, and following out first impulses, as he generally did, it will not appear strange to you that on this particular afternoon he did precisely what two hours before he had not the slightest idea of doing, went directly to the hotel and engaged the vacant rooms, making arrangements for an immediate removal. Then he felt better and walked the streets more composedly. Had he not vindicated his right to do exactly as he pleased, without regard to the opinions or expressions of others? Yet before that afternoon was over, this man heartily repented his hasty act. He would have given a great deal to undo it. He felt himself going contrary to, not exactly his convictions, but a dawning sense of duty. Well, why not undo the work? It was easily enough accomplished. He knew that it was a favorite hotel, and that these were favorite rooms, that at least two parties would be disappointed in their plans of going thither by his prompt action. Ah, then there loomed up before him that awful question, what will people think, which is really one of the very worst questions that can haunt a self-conscious man. They would consider it a very strange proceeding. They would think he feared unpleasant consequences, that he had not courage to brave public opinion. And Mr. Tresevant was willing to have them think anything in the world of him rather than that. Come what would, he was going to that hotel to board. Del Bronson went upstairs feeling strangely forlorn and desolate. Her conversation with Mr. Tresevant had revived old memories, buried hopes, or at least buried fancies. And at one period of our girlhood they are just as hard to bury as if they were real tangible hopes. What faith she once had in Mr. Tresevant! How earnestly she believed that whatever he did was from conscientious motives! How sure she was that God would lead him into just the right way! Remember that there was a time when all the dear and misty and altogether beautiful future was intertwined with thoughts of him. Now, indeed, she looked back on all those dreams and smiled, but it was a sad, sickly smile. Del Bronson was no sentimental girl in her teens, breaking her heart because the one whom she once looked on as her probable future husband was the husband of another. It had been a very long time since she thought of him in any such connection, she knew long ago that whatever that brief passage of their lives might have been to him, with her it was a mistaken fancy from which God had mercifully preserved her. She did not love Mr. Tresevant. More than that, she had known this long time that she never did love him, but she wanted, oh, so much, to respect him. It is a dozen times harder to cease respecting a person who has once come very near to you than it is to cease loving him, or at least to cease imagining that you love him. Dell would have liked to feel for Mr. Tresevant a genuine, hearty, earnest respect. She would have liked to accord to him all due and gracious reverence as a minister of the gospel, and every day he made this harder to do. How could she look up to and respect a man who acted like a tempestuous child on the smallest provocation? There had been times when, if she could have taken him by the hand and led him to a dark closet and closed the door upon him, bidding him remain there in solitude until he could be a better boy, she would have felt it to be much more in keeping with their relative characters than the positions which they now occupied. All these things, and some others, combined to make her sad. Something in his words had recalled to her a sense of the loneliness of her life. He had referred to her father, cruelly, heartlessly, she thought. Now Dell had been true to her woman's nature, in that the last year of her father's life had covered over all the dreary years going before. Her father, of whom Mr. Tresevant spoke so slightingly, was never the red-faced, blear-eyed, wretched man who used to sit in half-drunken stupidity, dozing before the fire in that awful bar-room. He was a helpless, grey-haired old man, 
looking always faultlessly clean and neat, bending earnest, tender eyes on the pages of the large old Bible, following her about the room with those same eyes full of unutterable love. How dull loved that memory! That was her father, who had given all the love of his heart to her, and her only. Now she was alone. There were Uncle Edward and Aunt Laura, yes, so there were, and never were there dearer hearts for one to rest upon. But then, thought Dell sadly, sitting down on the couch before the west window, but then they are not my father and mother. They love me, don't I know that they do, with all their hearts, but when I'm away they don't miss me as they would if I were their very own. The truth is I don't belong to anybody, that is, I'm not absolutely essential to anybody in this world. If I had a sister now, younger than myself, say, to look after and care for, but she would go and get married before I had realized that she was anything but a little girl. Seems to me I am young to be stranded on the beach, with such an all-alone feeling in my heart. Oh, I have friends, of course I have, plenty of them, but if I should die they would just miss me a little. Uncle Edward and Aunt Laura would, a great deal, and they would all speak of me tenderly and lovingly, and shed some tears, and after a little life would go on for them just about the same. She leaned from the window and plucked the leaves from a climbing vine and picked them in pieces, winking hard meantime to keep a tear or two from falling on them. Then she laughed a little, as this girl was apt to do, even in her most thoughtful moments, and continued her thinking aloud. Well, what of it? Are you going to be doleful because there isn't, anywhere in the world, a single heart that would break if you were gone? To persons of unselfish natures that ought to be a subject for thanksgiving. Don't you go into being lackadaisical, Del Bronson. Sentimental people are insufferable, especially at your age. Remember you are no longer a very young lady. It is really fortunate that this mood doesn't possess me very often. I shouldn't, in that case, consider it worth while to miss even myself. It's extraordinary that I should have blundered into the state of mind today, and it is especially strange that that ridiculous talk with that ridiculous man should have been the occasion of it. Why can't he be a man? You have one thing, certainly, to be forever grateful over, Del Bronson, and that is that you are not his wife. What a life we should lead! Ah, me! I wonder if I disappoint any one in my character as thoroughly as that man does me. I knew he wasn't perfect years ago, but I thought he was a good man. Well, I think so still, and I will think so. Saying which she arose suddenly, brushed the torn leaves from the window-seat, and said aloud in her old brisk tone, I'll find something to do for somebody. That is a great antidote for the blues, if this is a species of blues that hangs about me today. Then, after a pause, in gentler, tenderer tone, something to do for the king, my father. I have not thought enough about that of late. I must not forget to prepare for my appearance in court. As she turned from the window, a breath of something sweet floated toward her. She looked around for the producing cause. A single tea-rose glowed in her little lily-shaped vase on the mantel. Abby's rose, and Abby's hand had placed it there since dinner. She glanced about her for some other evidence of Abby's call. Ah! Behind the vase lay a letter. She seized it eagerly. Letters were very delightful creations to Dell. A nice thick letter, not in Uncle Edward's handwriting, though. But there were bright roses on her cheek as she recognized the hand. My dear friend, thus the letter ran, you will feel interested, I think, to hear that seminary life is over for me, was indeed some six weeks ago. But, besides being very busy, there are other considerations that delayed my writing. I am located for a year, supplying the second church of Rockton, 
during the absence of its pastor in Europe. A formidable undertaking, it seems to me, who am but a child in the new life, and who really feels so ill-prepared for the solemn work. But the hand of God seemed to point unmistakably in this direction. And all work for Christ is solemn, perhaps this not more so than others. The responsibilities are wider than they would be in a smaller field. I am not sure that they are greater. The people have greeted me with the utmost kindness and cordiality. With the place I believe you are familiar, so I need not speak of that. Now, do you know I am aware that this letter is moving on in a very stiff, proper way? Somewhat like the introduction to the sermon I am trying to write. In both cases it seems proper to expend a certain amount of time in commencing, while I really have that, both for the sermon and the letter, which weighs on my heart and which I long to reach. Shall we waive the introduction? Years ago, dear friend, I broached a subject to you which, perhaps, you have forgotten. You were very frank with me then. I thank you for it. I have hesitated long about writing this letter, lest it might be wrong in me, might be giving you unnecessary pain to bring this matter before you again. Yet I find that my heart clings very strangely to the little fragment of hope that, perhaps, lapse of time may have healed over a wound in your heart, and that you will let me plant a new germ there. I am aware that I am treading on dangerous ground. I do not know the nature of your confidence. I do not know whether the grave has closed over your plans. I want to touch with tender, reverent hand this past of yours, but, in justice to myself, I have decided that I must touch it. Just here, let me stop to thank you for your letters, few as they have been. They have been very helpful to me. I feel that I shall do a better work for Christ, because of some words written therein, than I would have done without them but now I have something to say that I fear will sound harshly, yet it must be said. They have been too helpful for me. I fear I have abused your trust. The cheery, friendly letters that you have occasionally sent me I have tried to respond to in the same strain. Dell, the time has come when I can do this no longer. I have decided to be frank with you and tell you so, even at the risk of having no more words from you, but I feel that I can write no more such replies to you as I have been able to do." The letter was long, page after page, closely written. Certainly the young minister, whoever he was, could hardly expect to have time to write often such letters as that one. Dell knew very well indeed who it was from. She did not need to turn to the signature, which nevertheless she did and read Homer M. Nelson over and over again with dancing eyes. There were sentences in that letter, written evidently, with much hesitancy and pain, that seemed positively ludicrous to Dell. The wound in her heart, indeed. If there ever had been one there, what had become of it? No, the grave had not closed over her plans. What an amusing satisfaction it would be to tell him all about it. That, instead of any such heavy sorrow, there had mercifully interposed another marriage, wherein she had not been considered. And yet it would be mortifying to tell him who that other really was. What would he think of her having fancied herself satisfied with that nature, whose depths she knew he had sounded? When the long letter was finally concluded, all the somberness had gone out of Dell's heart and life, all the merriment had gone from her eyes, in their place was a sweet, tender peace. She arose from her chair and stood irresolute a moment, as if uncertain, amid all this new rush of feeling, what to do next. Then suddenly she dropped upon her knees, and her first words were, My father, I thank thee that thou hast had thy way from first to last with thy sinful, blundering, impatient child, and hast led me through many and unknown byways into the light and joy of human love. End of chapter 12. 
Recording by Tricia G.